I'm Kelsey Zeiser. I'm a senior editor at Light Reading, and we're listening to the Light Reading podcast here at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. Great to be talking to you, Kelsey. I'm JP Hemingway. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer here at SES. Yeah, thanks for joining me, JP. My pleasure. It's a great show to be at. Yeah. So I caught up with you all a few months ago about the um, O3B Empower uh, satellites. Um, do you have some updates there? Uh, some some new launch information? Because at the time we were we were waiting for launch. Yes. <laughs> Well, obviously, you joined at just the right time. I mean, we think about the last year or so, we've kind of seen the satellites come out of the Boeing facility, which is really exciting to see them. And then we launched the first two in December, and they're, they're performing perfectly. So they're still on their way towards their, their orbit in, in the medium Earth orbit location, um, but they're all performing well. We're talking to them. They've got the solar panels deployed, so everything nominal, which is fantastic. Um, the next two launches will happen in Q2 of this year, so we're just getting the final dates locked down two more launches of two satellites per launch, uh, and that gives us the six that we need to provide the truly global coverage around our equatorial orbit. So we will be in service by Q3 of this year, and uh, that's the whole point of being in this show, is talking about the services that will be um, will be enabled by this great infrastructure. Because mm -hmm. I, I think it takes about six months from launch um, for them to be fully operational, is that right? It can be. Okay. Uh, it all depends on how far the launch is taking you towards its eventual target. Uh, our partners over at SpaceX sometimes you know, fully reuse the rockets or sometimes they'll punch them further around to space. And then we use the ion propulsion to get to the, the rest of the position. And then whilst we're doing that, we're going through in-orbit testing. And then finally, once they get into their actual um, equatorial orbit, we need to sort of uh, equidistantly space them into their final locations. And when we finally get the six, they're all in the right space around the Earth so that we get that continuous coverage around the globe. Great. And for those who are maybe um, not as familiar with some of your partnerships, can you just give a, a quick update on uh, what your partnership is with SpaceX and also Boeing on these satellites? Absolutely. So um, SpaceX has been a longtime launch partner of ours. Uh, we were the very first uh, customer of theirs to use a flight-proven uh, satellite. You know, don't call it used. It's definitely flight-proven, but actually we, we, we thought it was the right thing to do. They've been very disruptive in their markets and have been a, a really strong partner to deliver our, our satellites into space. And they launched the last two and did a really good job of delivering them really deeply towards our, our orbit. So that's the, the launch partner. Boeing has been a fantastic partner for years, building as geostationary satellites and they did a really innovative um, bid and submission for O3BM Power. And they've designed an entirely new payload. It's got entirely new technology on there that allow, enables things like beam forming from space. It just really has moved the needle on what you should expect something to do. Completely software defined, dedicated, integrated payload arrays that are built from the grounds up. It's been a fantastic partnership, really sort of pushing the boundaries of what you can put into space and the capabilities are just incredible. Yeah, and could you talk a little bit more about some of those software-defined capabilities and how does that allow you to, you know, potentially make updates to the satellite after it's been launched? Absolutely, you think about a satellite, when we first think around a whiteboard, you know, and say, hey, let's build a new satellite architecture. We spend, you know, a year or so thinking about that, sending out RFIs and RFPs, and then there's a certain period of time to 
you know, contract and build the satellite. A long way of saying, you need a crystal ball in this industry to know what's going to happen in three years, five years, seven years down the road. So not having something that's soft definable is not an option anymore. So what this allows us to do, we've got two elements. We've got uh, what I tend to call the space brain, which is our uh, adaptive resource controller, ARC as we call it, and that really controls where the power and bandwidth is allocated. So we can beamform up to 5,000 beams per satellite, and our current generation, by the way, was fixed at 10 beams. So this is 10 to 5,000 is the incremental huge leap that we've made here. And you can really form those beams wherever you want to on the planet. And you can say, I'd like to have a gigabit there and 100 megabits there, and then press a button and completely reconfigure to 100 sites of 100 megabits, right? It's completely, uh, completely flexible. So that's the ARC system. And then on top of that, we've got a sort of a network brain that translates the requirements of our customers, which is I'd like an Ethernet service or an IP service. We've standardized all of that to the telco standard so they could reach into our system through APIs. We receive their request for 100 Ethernet services. That then translates it into our ARC system, and then that actually programs down the satellite. So it's really got this multi-layer from telco standards through to the, the space translation layer, and then that programs the satellites to have all the capabilities they need to. And again, over time, we can certainly push capabilities to it, but it's a very flexible system from the outset. Mm -hmm. And how are you applying um, some learnings from, say, terrestrial networks and also 5G into these satellites as well? So one of the things that we want to do is to make this, we always have this mantra of we've got to make satellites seamless. When satellite is the point of last resort that you go to and you can't reach those last 10 sites, that's interesting, but not very. We needed to make this as a telco, for example, you know, say, I want 100 sites on fiber and 100 sites on something else. They shouldn't care that it's over satellite. We should hide that fact almost and make it instantly programmable. So we've adopted all of the service definitions from things like uh, MEF LSO architecture so that when they recognize what these uh, capabilities are like, it's like Ethernet service with these endpoints, with this construct at that speed, with this kind of forward and return ratio. So it looks and feels like an off-net connection to them. The other thing we want to make sure is that the performance of the links made it uh, connect 5G out there in the world as if it was over fiber. So we are, have a guaranteed committed information rate, and a lot of sat satellites can't do that. Mm -hmm. It's a best effort, whereas it's absolutely guaranteed. Uh, it can have as much forward and return as you want to. So the fiber world is used to symmetric services, and in satellite, it's usually very asymmetric. A lot of capacity pushed down to the Earth and not much coming back. Ours is completely as symmetric or as asymmetric as you like, so that makes it look, again, look and feel like fiber. And then the latency is low enough that we can have it work over any application we've found that we've tested. And the biggest one of that is the 5G tests that we've done, either a virtual 5G instance through our friends at Microsoft, testing with Nokia, or testing with Do in the Middle East. And when they've tested their 5G backhaul, it just works as if it was fiber connected. And in the years gone by, when satellite did uh, sell back or it generally had to be tweaked to overcome the latency and the, and the lower throughput. You don't need that at all anymore. It just works seamlessly with 5G. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and I think you also, do you have some um, uh, first responder use cases as well? And what are 5G bubbles? <laughs> it's a great thing. And we heard all these phrases. Maybe 5G bubble <laughs> is just nice to say. But, so, but what it really is, it's, it's enabling private 5G at the edge. And some of the applications we've worked with, particularly with Microsoft and in Taiwan, we did this great user case, but we've got loads of these around the world. It's when you've got a, a, a 5G instance at the edge, so you've got a, a cloud edge device hosting 5G, uh, and the 5G core is hosted, 
and then you've got a um, open RAN partner like we had with uh, I think it was Pegatron uh, in, in Taiwan. So you've got the open RAN hardware, you've got the virtual 5G instance running, and then all of that needs connectivity. So all of these first responders in the bubble are all connected over the private 5G to the 5G node, if you want to call it that. And then we provide all the connectivity from that node out to the internet or to the switching center. But these are mobile. And that's the thing that makes it has to be over satellite. These are trucks effectively outfitted with uh, satellite infrastructure and this 5G infrastructure all packaged together. And they can drive to a natural disaster impacted area and get the whole emergency comm set up and make it complete resilient. So it's a great application. I think it will be applied across, frankly, all countries need this kind of disaster recovery scenario because we all know that you know, things Especially happen. Especially with the earthquakes um, going on right now, um, things like that. Um, and uh, you also mentioned earlier, you know, the within the mid-Earth orbit, having the, I think it's 5,000 beams from the satellite. Does uh, being in mid-Earth allow you to um, have more, a broader coverage area with uh, fewer satellites and say, um, lower Earth orbit? Yeah. So the reason we picked the medium Earth orbit is exactly that. So when you're in geostationary, it's actually a really good orbit to see as big a swathe of the planet that you can. It, and it's still a really good technology today. We've got over 50 geostationary satellites doing great business for things like aviation connectivity and rural connectivity projects. But as you come closer, it allows you to have the high performance. So we've got this balance of being close enough to have any throughput that makes sense. And we're now talking, say, not megabits, but gigabits and 10 gigabits of connectivity via satellite, which is unheard of. It's also got latency typically less than 150 milliseconds. And again, we haven't found an application that won't run seamlessly over that distance. And then still at medium Earth orbit, you can still see a really good portion of the Earth. Mm -hmm. So we could see, for example, the entire continent of Africa and then take all that down to any gateway we'd need to either inside Africa or to an adjacent country. So it gives you that connectivity and performance. And LEOs are good for certain capabilities, absolutely. But the closer you come, of course, you get the, the higher performance. But again, no better than 10 gigs for sure. But then you only see a very small piece of the Earth. And that means that you need to have thousands of these satellites and things like inter-satellite links so you can build a mesh network around it. Doable, but fairly complex to run and fairly capitally intensive to launch and typically need thousands or tens of thousands of satellites. We can see all the things we need to with six and then we'll keep building more Mm -hmm. because that's just, that's just capacity driven at that point. Yeah, and I imagine the LEO space is getting a little crowded. <laughs> the LEO space is indeed crowded. I think there's some really good, and we, we're actually doing projects for governments where they've already stated we mm -hmm. want LEO, NEO, and GEO. Mm -hmm. So we know that each of them has their sweet spot. But I think probably there's too many people talking about too many LEOs, ultimately. <laughs> yeah. um, so does the world need that many? Probably not. And I think in the future, there'll be one or two of them that are successful, but I think the others are gonna be a little bit challenged because the business models of LEO is hard. I mean, it's mm -hmm. so much CapEx you have to launch, uh, so many satellites that have a fairly short window. Um, the very thought of having, you know, five, six, seven of these constellations out there, you know, it gets a little bit challenging at this point. So that's why we focused on MEO and GEO. We actually do have our first uh, LEO satellite being built. It's a very specific application for quantum key distribution. And it's something we're working with the Luxembourg government and the European community to allow quantum computing encrypted from space with a particular application. So that's 
pretty exciting to work on too. And quantum key, is that in uh, blockchain applications or? Uh, link to that for sure. Okay. So yeah, absolutely, any kind of quantum computing, um, authentication at scale, uh, really needs this quantum key distribution. So it, it's absolutely unhackable if anything is truly unhackable. If you miss, mess with one of the photons of the optical signal, it's detected. Okay. And it's really hard to do terrestrially because every time you go through a terrestrial amplifier or a regenerator, that messes with the quantum state. Okay. So if you can go up from the Earth, up to satellite and back down without messing with the quantum state, it's a great way to reach any bank or enterprise or government facility that wants this quantum key distribution. Okay. Excellent. Um, any other, uh, you know, services or partnerships that you all are um, excited about, specifically at MWC that you're that you're showcasing this week? I mean, the partnerships are growing every single day, and we understand today we've literally got you know, the work we've done with Microsoft being showcased in the private 5G, the work we're doing with British Telecom, the work we're doing with Orange and Telstra, uh, and one of our partners, Marlink, who really goes across all the segments, and they're, they're of course, focused on their own infrastructure. This is the 5G backhaul capabilities. But where they're really focused is in connecting their enterprise markets and looking at things like oil and gas markets, uh, mining facilities, large-scale industries. And that's where satellite can be the primary connection for things like offshore energy or can be a resilience mechanism for large enterprises where terrestrial and satellite is combined seamlessly with techniques such like SD-WAN, et cetera, to make sure that the bundle works as seamlessly as you can together. So really interested with the work we're doing. We've got so many, we've got over 100 meetings here in the, at the show, <laughs> and uh, everyone's just really amazed about how seamless we've made satellite and integrate into their network. Yeah, well, luckily with all those meetings, you all have really great coffee at your booth, so. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that's needed to get through the 100 meetings, but it's been a great show so far. <laughs> for sure is. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Kelsey, and I uh, hope that you enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks.